The courthouse clock chimed seven times. The echoes of the chimes faded. Warm summer twilight here in upper Illinois country and this little town deep far away from everything. Kept to itself by a river and a forest and a meadow and a lake. The sidewalks still scorched. The stores closing and the streets shadowed. And there were two moons. The clock moon with four faces in four night directions above the solemn black courthouse. And the real moon rising in vanilla whiteness from the dark east. Lightning recap. In the whole town sleeping by Ray Bradbury, three women go out on the town despite the serial killer haunting, haunting local ladies. Oh, sure he's haunting them. Despite her bravado, one of the women's walk home becomes terrifying. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. This is Short Story Short Podcast. I am... Christopher J. Garcia, today here with Christy L. Baxter. And this is a special breathy edition of this podcast. Um, If I want something that (sighs) will take my breath away, what should I read this week? Well... If you wanted something to take your breath away, you would read, like really, seriously, it made me gasp at the end. You would read The Whole Town Sleeping by (sighs) Ray Bradbury. We're like really annoying people who hate ASMR, of which I am one, so I'm doing this to myself. Ah, no, no, not the mouth noises, not the dreaded mouth noises. Yes, this is the first author we've done two stories of. And I got to say, I can't think of two stories that are more different than The Velt and The Whole Town Sleeping, who are written by the same dude, uh, who happened to be a friend of mine um, back in the day uh, when he was alive. But this story is creepy. Mm -hmm. It's brilliantly constructed and the writing is so different from so much Bradbury out there because it is stripped down and limited to very short, very precise, very focused sentences. Except when it's not because he, he takes that, that kind of idea that if you use a lot of the, the short focused sentences, then when you really need to catch your reader up in the flow and the wave of an idea, then you can employ one of those really long ones. Like for instance, I actually made a note of this um, because it struck me how he manages to wrap up the headiness of a summer night with the like thickness of fear in a community. And he has, how strange the popsicle, the vanilla night, the night of close packed ice cream, of mosquito lotion wrists, the night of running children suddenly veered from their games and put away behind glass, behind wood, the popsicles and melting puddles of lime and strawberry where they fell when the children were scooped indoors. 
So that's all one, one sentence. And he manages to cobble together all these ideas to give you just a, a, a very certain specific feeling. True. And then he does a sentence that I think is my favorite in the entire story. It was as if someone had predicted freezing weather a moment ago. And that almost does as much work as that whole big, wonderful, multi-layered sentence before. <laughs> yeah, it really does. And that's also kind of a running theme that as soon as people get like this feeling about this, this lonely, the lonely one, uh, they turn cold. You know, it happens when the body is found. It happens when they're talking about him. There'll just be this feeling of, oh my gosh, it's so cold. It's like it's winter, even though it's summer. So this feeling of kind of an, an incongruity of something gone wrong in a place where everything would previously have been right. And if you look at the history of serial killers in the United States, particularly ones who are not caught for a long period, such as, you know, you had uh, BTK, you had, in particular, the one I'm thinking of, of course, the Zodiac, Long Island serial killer, Boston Strangler. The impact they have, particularly on young people, mm -hmm. makes it much more powerful as this entity that is beyond the scope of your regular everyday understanding. And I think Bradbury perfectly portrays that here. Yeah, in, in a way, because there was one thing, like I think about something like say the Gainesville Ripper, where uh -huh. you have a case where a serial killer is hitting a specific community and a specific demographic. But in this case, it feels like in the, in the story, in, in Bradbury's story, it feels like everybody's kind of separating themselves, locking themselves up behind closed doors because they can't, maybe, maybe they can't even trust each other. Whereas in the case of the Gainesville Ripper, you had entire communities of young people joining together to have these like big, huge sleepovers to make sure that nobody was alone. Hmm. That's an interesting point. I think one of the things that people talk about here about who grew up in, you know, the late 60s, early 70s with Zodiac looming over them at, behind every tree was that no one went alone. That is a very good point. But also what happened was people started to use that to give themselves the thrill of being in some place where they were in danger, real or imagined. You'd still had people going out to the lover's lanes, even specifically the lover's lanes where the Zodiac had plied his trade. So this idea that everyone is sort of shutting themselves away, that's possible, but there's also the ones who run towards it. People yeah. like, you know, true crime podcasters. <laughs> we do sometimes run a little towards it but i did say at one point in my notes uh that literally anyone who's ever watched read or listened to five minutes of true crime wants to knock lavinia over the head throughout this entire story and then i actually i set myself up for for failure and disappointment i said but i'm hoping her near eagerness to put herself in danger is a red herring and then she said you'll see i'll live forever and my next note is god damn it lavinia <laughs> <laughs> there are horror tropes for a reason yep. <laughs> and, and it's story in Lavinia <laughs> and I think that this story plays with them because by 1950 when this came out they were just starting to sort of edge in horror was not yet defined as we know it today you still did have even in things like you know Dracula and even Frankenstein, I have to know what's going on behind that door, even though 
you should go nowhere near that door. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But oh. this, yeah, the way Lavinia is portrayed here, I think she's portrayed as more heart than head. But at the same time, I think she's just a stupid young person. <laughs> well, she was always going to be the target. You know, I'm pretty sure that they were inches away from saying that she lit up every room she walked into. <laughs> She's the prettiest maiden in town. And, and also, I'd like to point out, until it was mentioned their specific ages, I thought they were teenagers. This is a group of 37, 30-some-year-old women. Like, one of the, Lavinia, I think, is noted as being 33, so I just assume the other girls are around this. Women, God, I'm doing it. The other women are around the same age. And they're very much, I mean, not acting their age, I don't think. And I think that reveal was intentional. Because it makes you realize exactly how vulnerable we are, no matter what age we are, two things that we tend to ascribe to younger people. Middle-aged folk are just as stupid as teenagers. We just have to pay mortgages. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, recklessness does not have an age limit. And we definitely see that here with Lavinia. And even even Bradbury gives us he, he gives us that moment of, you know, I see it too. Don't worry, I'm not stupid. Where he has <laughs> Helen kind of playing the part of the, the reader insert and saying to Lavinia, sometimes I think people want to die. You've acted odd all evening. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, yes, Helen, you're my girl. <laughs> like, yeah. Now make her stay at your house. Oh, no. No. <laughs> and I think that part of why when I read a story like this that is so designed to give us an ending that we assume is going to happen pretty much from the beginning, <laughs> you have to give us potential outs so that as we're going through, we see, oh, it could go off in this direction and everything will be fine. But you also have to smartly close off those. And I think Lavinia closes them off for herself in such a way that we're supposed to absolutely hate her. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's this, that, that idea that I had about her being maybe a red herring. And obviously, you get to a certain point and it's like, yeah, that's that's probably not the case. Because, like, you know, she's she's definitely running right into the danger and then literally running at one point and, you're, and the story's closing down and it's starting to, you know, the time left is starting to shrink. So you're like, okay, well, there's no time to introduce somebody else who isn't Lavinia. So Lavinia is our focus here. Okay, all right. And then she just, the idea of her being the red herring almost, it's, it's as, as for me at least, it stuck with me long enough that I wasn't able to stay one step ahead of her and so, I mean, and it's also that I can sometimes be a, 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 an idiot, starry-eyed optimist. That I, I, even though I, I dislike her, I still don't want her to die. I still don't want her to be murdered. You know, like, I don't, I don't care how stupid you are. Nobody deserves that. And, okay, well, maybe like one or two people. 
but like not 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 at, it's it's not fair to happen and then we have that moment where Ray Bradbury gives you if you are a stupid star at Optimus this feeling of well maybe she'll be okay and of course she's not going to be of course she's not going to be if you that, that's what the, that just wait for the last line it's coming but you've been waiting for the red herring and so you think oh maybe the red herring is that she's going to be okay no it's not no that's not it that's not it. Just let you know. Yeah, I think how you build to an ending like this is utterly key. And I think Bradbury is great here. But at the same time, you have to deliver at the end. Oh, yes. And here the payoff is one sentence. Oh, my God. It's brilliant. Amazing. It's expected now because we expect it, but I think we're looking again at a case of it being, a tr- we're looking at one of the near progenitors of the trope, perhaps. Absolutely. It's just a fantastically simple way to end a story that has been, it's not complicated. I think there are levels of complexity, but you have to take it in as a whole to get them. Yes, yes, I agree with you there. Um, it's it, it's one of those things that it, it looks simple on the surface and you can easily mistake it for being simple. But then once you look more closely, you, you kind of have these moments of like, ah, uh, and, and realization like the, the fact that, you know, not to go backwards too much, but just the fact that we are brought into this so quickly and also given sort of the foils to Lavinia from the very beginning. It's like the second page, so probably like, like I don't know, sixth, seventh paragraph, something like that. Some, some other ladies sitting on a porch and they say, won't catch us out on no night like this, not with the lonely one out strangling women. And you should know from right there. You should know from right there that you should be picking out which of the girls is going to die. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a question of whether the story is about the person who gets it in the end or if that person is supposed to be us and is watching the horror at the end. Oh, you just made me that. that, 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 that mm. Yeah, think about that, huh? I'm I'm trying super hard not to and just breezing right past that. Uh, we, <laughs> I don't like it at all, Chris. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I We're don't not know why that. Watch... We're just not going to make you watch horror. any murders. <laughs> I mean, it's which is a weird thing to ask of somebody who is literally it's you know in the true crime genre. <laughs> but something about this one, man, it got me like. The screaming in my head at the end, the fact that I had a visceral, I had a visceral reaction. I gasped even the <clears> whole <throat> time while I was like, stupid Lavinia. Oh my God. Come on. Everyone wants to bash you over the head right now. But all of that time passed with me being angry at Lavinia. And he still managed to get me to the point where with that last line, that very last, just absolute knock you off your feet of a line. I went, <gasps> and then it was over. Yeah, they they left you exactly when your breath left you. Yep. That's the blurb. 
Yeah, yeah, there you go. And then, of course, it's one of those where you're like, please let there be another page. Please, like, oh, there's not another page. Damn it. <laughs> well, this one is, I think of all the short story authors who we could have revisited twice, I think Bradbury was the perfect choice for it because of the the difference between the two. And what's amazing is that this story reflects on so many others. The one, of course, that I'm thinking of is, where are you going? Where have you been? Oh, yes, absolutely. There, There's a tie to be made there. You know, we have the girl, woman, whatever, who is doing things that the, the audience is sitting there going, no, don't do it. Stop it. And the difference being that we never see uh, this story's Arthur friend that we know of. Uh, there's a couple guys mentioned, but we still don't know at the end. That's another thing that made me crazy about the story. I was like, oh, I'm never going to know. <laughs> who did it and then you have that unsolved aspect too that can really get to you are you sure that this is the only author we've hit up twice i can't put my finger on it but i feel like there has to be another one we had two named bartleby and they could be one guy i've never seen them together but uh <laughs> no i believe this is the first time we've doubled up huh, interesting okay I, I believe you. It's just it's weird to me that I, um, I just have this weird feeling of like, no, but we have before, but I'm kind of like scrolling through our stuff and I'm not, I'm not really seeing any hints that we might have. Maybe it's, maybe it's also that we went uh, Raymond Chandler, then Raymond Carver. <laughs> right, the battle of the Raymonds. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But yes, I'm, I'm glad we did revisit Ray because he's, He's becoming more and more interesting as a short story writer, as opposed to a science fiction writer. And there is a balance to be found in there. But I think stories like this show his mastery of the form more than his mastery of idea. I agree with you on that. Uh, I absolutely agree with you there. This is definitely somebody who is doing something he's damn good at. Uh, I just wanted to say that the echoed steps in there, again, it's a trope when you realize that if somebody is taking their, their steps at the exact same time as you in order to hide the sound of a, of a footstep, but it's done so well and it's still, no matter how tropey it is, it's nightmare fuel, like 100%. <laughs> uh, nightmare fuel, bless it. Hey, hey, Christy. Hey, 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 what? Should we read another story next week? Um, you know, I think I'm going to be pretty busy. Well, you know, all right, all right, all right. We can read another story, Chris. We had to shift our story at the very last minute. And instead, we're going to be reading... On the Lonely Shore by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia from Uncanny Magazine. But until then, <laughs> uh, this has been, uh, yeah, a short story. Uh, 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 short podcast.